In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a super exciting episode for you. Um, we've got uh, our first ever interview on The Perspectrum. We'll also talk about um, Trump's recently proposed budget and a little bit about Mike Bloomberg and Stop and Frisk. Yeah, uh, but before we get started, I do need to say that uh, I got something wrong last week. And we here at the Perspectrum believe in intellectual honesty, so we admit when we're wrong. I said that Amy Klobuchar did an absolutely terrible job at the debate and that it was going to get her nowhere, and it got her to third place in New Hampshire. And you know what? I'm not happy about that, but it happened. Apparently, she convinced some people in New Hampshire, so good for her. To be fair, you were only wrong about the second part, not the fact that she did terribly, just that it wouldn't help her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so joining us on the pod today, he is a uh, he has formerly worked for Virginia Organizing. He's worked for the National Low Income Housing Coalition and the Virginia Housing Coalition, the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice. He is a former candidate for the Virginia 29th District House of Delegates, and the first volume of his new book will be coming out in April, entitled "Not Just Monuments: A History of Whiteness and Racism in Virginia from Their Beginnings in the Late 1600s to Today." Welcome, Larry Lamar Yates. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Nathan and Mike. Appreciate it. This is not just about the monuments, as um, as entitled from uh, your book. It's about what the monuments represent. So before we get started, I do want to ask, as a white man, what do you think is the importance of white people being involved in critiquing the history of racism in Virginia? I think that it's part of our being a moral person and a person who pays attention. This is part of how we live and what we do. Um, it's not any more or any less part of that. And really, I look to um, my book as the evidence. In other words, if what's in my book is accurate, and I think it is, and we genuinely see a process of whiteness and racism throughout the last 350 years or so, then I don't see how we can honestly avoid it or, or not look at it. So basically what you're saying then is that the history of racism in Virginia, it cannot just be classified as the history of black people in Virginia, but it's also the history of white people because, I mean, we're the ones that did the racism. Right. right. I mean, whiteness in particular, and that's, I kind of focus on that, um, is something that was done by white people and that white people adopted. You know, just to be very clear, before the 1600s, people in Virginia did not consider themselves white. You know, people who came from England, they were Yorkshiremen, they were Belgians, whatever they were. But the idea of whiteness came into Virginia law in the 1670s, 1680s. So, and that was done by white people, and white people adopted it. So, that's really interesting. So, what do you think is the reason why um, 
we adopted whiteness as like such an important cultural thing? Was it specifically about power or was it some kind of uh, mandate of heaven ideology? Well, I think it starts out with power. Starts out with power and money, frankly. You know, you had a, a ruling group, the tobacco planters, who on the one hand were making tons of money. On the other hand, their power was on very shaky ground. You know, they'd come from England where, you know, the king had been the king for hundreds of years, and all of a sudden they were over here, and there were other people who were questioning them, and they didn't have really have that royal authority. The king didn't pay that much attention to Virginia. And, of course, also in the middle 1600s, back in England, the king was overthrown and executed. <laughs> you know, so, so there were a lot of questions about power and who got to have power. They were challenged by the native people. You know, not that long in the late 1620s, there was uh, what they call a massacre, but a pushback by native people which killed a significant proportion of all the English people in the colony. Um, you know, black people weren't seen that much of a group as a that much of a group yet, but they were still present. And the but there was a rebellion in the 1670s, Bacon's Rebellion, mm. which succeeded in it burned the capital city to the ground, and it drove the governor across the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and until he got help from England, he was just on the run. So they were very scared of the power of particularly the common working people. And the other thing is you can't do tobacco without skilled labor. So it was a part of, so part of it was dividing the masses then. It's like, well, um, we don't want the working people like the slaves, the indentured servants. We don't want them to rise against the people in charge. So if we divide them, say, okay, you're white, so you're superior to these people, then we can gain power over all of them. Correct. Correct. And there were very explicit uh, laws which were put into place, which took away rights. In other words, when Virginia was settled, there's explicit language that said Virginians have the same rights that Englishmen always had. Now, of course, you got differences between men and women and rich people and poor people, but there were some basic rights, trial by jury, you know, be able to marry who you wanted to, you know, certain things. Those rights were all taken away from the enslaved people, and in fact, all black people hmm. in the late 1600s. Interesting. So it sounds like the development of a white identity was a clear and likely intentional move to consolidate and unite power of a group that, you know, was trying to gain traction in like the new world during that period against Native Americans, uh, united against black people, and even against Europeans as well. So like a, a nat like a white national identity of Americans. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, this was before they really thought of themselves as Americans. Mm -hmm. But the tobacco planters, the wealthy people, you know, all they really had going for them was money and the fact that some of them were aristocrats, supposedly, mm -hmm. but not all of them. So um, they needed something else. Yeah. And, it, and that creation of that identity then 
if I'm following this thread, to Nathan's point, would allow them to bridge the gap between them as white aristocracy and the white poor, right. and also the gap between them as white Southerners and white Northerners. Together, they, they could like well, try to bridge that. Again, the Southern and Northern thing was really not an issue then. Because remember, it was not, you know, Virginians were a colony. They had a mm. relationship to England. Sure. They had as much relationship to Barbados as they did to New York, <laughs> you know, which is, there was a relationship, sure. but it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And mostly defined by their economic prosperity, mostly defined by the industry that they were working on. Right. Yeah. Well, they also did things like get together with New York to negotiate mm. with the Iroquois, things like that. Sure. But um, there was no inherent necessity for them to relate to New York positively or negatively. Interesting. Because um, one one historical example that I can think of of just how uh, race and the identity of whiteness is used to really gain power over the working classes, um, like w with Irish immigrants, uh, where Irish immigrants were not considered white, even though, I mean, if you look at their faces, arguably they're, were, they're more white than a lot of white people. Um, so how, how, would, how would that sort of function into it where it's not necessarily about skin color? Well, of course, that happened at a later date. Yeah. But yeah, the Irish were not considered to be white um, because whiteness was a legal definition. Um, the way I look at it, when whiteness was first created here in Virginia and in Maryland, South Carolina, basically it's like everybody counted off. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you were one or you were two, you're okay. If you were three, go to the back of the line. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, it, nobody measured skin color. You know, there was sort of a general assumption that if you were very dark, you were probably African and they could make you a slave. Mm. But uh, over the period of slavery, there were court cases where people said, no, I'm white. And it went to a judge and they had to discuss it and things that would come into it would be uh, how wealthy they are, how solidly established in the community they are, do they hang out with other white people? And there were you know, cases where somebody might be real dark-skinned and have, uh, you know, have curly hair, but the judge said, no, that's a white person. So, so fundamentally then, from its roots, whiteness was about class division, clearly, but also like consolidating power in a specific group of, like a specific both racial and economic group of people. Right. Racial, of course, was an idea that came later. Yeah. Really seems like more economic. of one of convenience. It's like you yeah. can more easily identify and divide people up if you can look at them and say they're one thing or another thing. But it seems like, yeah, it's more of an economic position than anything else, which is exceedingly different from the modern conception of race, especially as people talk about, you know, whiteness versus minorities as being, you know, components of a, of a racial, like cultural divide. Like, it seems like it was almost not even about that. It was. It's persisted as right. it's. It's continued to be um, a, a piece of uh, of economic division more than and and division of of rights and eligibility more than anything else. Well, the whole idea of, of race in particular came along later, and really in the nineteenth century, a lot of what we believe about mm -hmm. that. So you've got, in other words, the actual fact of a power differential. You're in this group. I'm in this group. 
comes first, and then the justifications, explanations, quote, science, all that stuff. Yeah, phrenology and all that stuff. Right, that all comes later. So do you think that um, in the early development of whiteness, that there is a meaningful distinction between whiteness as a culture and whiteness as a legal definition? I don't think it was a culture at first. Okay. You know, in other words, there was an English culture, clearly, though English people were very divided at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were from Yorkshire, you were a pretty different person than if you were from London, you know, and you might not even be able to understand each other, for instance. Mm. Um, but, you know, there was some cultural background. The, the cultural background had to do with Christianity. Interesting. In the, the first settlement, what they talked about is Christians versus Indians, Christians versus heathens from Africa. Now, there were some real problems with this. First, a number of enslaved people came from Angola, which had had strong Christian uh, connections since the 1500s. The Portuguese had been there. Some of the kings and queens had converted, of course, to Catholicism, but still Christianity. So they were Christian when they got here. And in fact, there's some evidence that some of the first Africans to come here were treated differently because they were Christians Hmm. and they could buy land and do all those things. And then, of course, once Africans had been here for a generation or so, a lot of them became Christians and eventually the vast majority did. Hmm. So um, there had to be a specific law, which there was, in around 1680, which said, if you become a Christian, you're still enslaved. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to pass that law because originally, if you were a Christian, you could not be enslaved. Yeah. Interesting. So Christianity Christianity no longer became a useful mechanism for dividing up people on an economic and basis of inequality. Right. And because so to, anybody could convert. Yeah. And if it was to their economic benefit, most people probably would. Sure, sure. So... um it seems like today whiteness has diverted from it being a legal thing and it really has become a cultural thing, which is interesting because as you pointed out, uh, there are so many cultures that go into that. There are so many different European cultures that go into it. There are so many difference between differences between people from Britain, people from uh, France, people from Germany. Um, where do you, where would you say like in Virginia, um, and, and, uh, and as it relates to the United States as a whole, that it really did go from just being a, a focus on legal definition to being a focus on like cultural pride. When, when, when would well, you say that? I, I guess I would question your, your whole premise. Okay. Like first, when we talk about a legal definition that really only goes out in the 1960s. Okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, up when I was, I'm, I was born in 1950. When I graduated from high school in Virginia, it was still legal to say, I'm not going to rent to you unless you're white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was still a legal definition because, you know, the landlord would have to establish, well, you're not white. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're not talking about a long time ago. Yeah. But point. the other thing I would say is that even when it's not explicitly legal, if it's been around for 300 years, people know how it works. Mm. And the Mm. fact is, when we have uh, 
you know, mass incarceration that is heavily black, when we see the police treated, treating black people differently, or our teachers treating black people differently, mm-hmm. then clearly everybody's, not everybody, a lot of people are still playing by those rules, even though legally they're not required to, because those rules still work. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it's like if you take, uh, I'm sorry, if you take redlining, you know, at one point it was against the law to, you know, put black people in a certain neighborhood, and particularly the Federal Housing Administration would not lend money to put black people in a, quote, white neighborhood. Um, that's not true anymore. It stopped being true in 1968. But it still works the same way, and everybody knows what the rules are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they had to invent a new legal standard to try to combat this in the lead-up to Brown v. Board, which was substantive due process. So previously it was just due process, and but you could get around that by, like, by the to the letter of the law, writing it in such a way that it wasn't discriminatory. But you would then be able to, to your point, enact the same exact results via a non-explicitly racist mechanism and get around it. So the Supreme Court had to come up with a whole new standard just to be able to target exactly that specific um, problem. The situation with Brown versus Board and all of, the, all of those laws and, and uh, legal decisions uh, particularly the legal decisions, was that the white people who were discriminating were not charged with anything. Mm. In other words, nobody said, we're going to desegregate all those schools that all those bad people segregated. Yeah. They just said, we're going to desegregate the schools. And it's sort of like a, a verb with no subject. Interesting. You know? That's that's a good point. It's, it's I mean, even in the name, specifically Brown v. Board of Education, the Board of Education didn't have anything levied against them. Like it was a right. civil suit that ended in a change in the law, almost like a legislative change, rather than any type of damages being awarded. Right. Oh, Stop man. doing it. Yeah. Sure. Don't do it anymore, and we won't talk about what you did. For yeah. A <laughs> yeah. century. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So. This is really interesting because the way you are, um, the way you're kind of building up and sort of framing uh, how it has, uh, how the law has kind of translated into um, basically old habits. So you brought up redlining, uh, how it used to be expected legally to make sure to keep um, black people in lower income neighborhoods, white people in the higher income neighborhoods. It was required. Yeah, it was required. Um and that still happens today, even though it's not required. Um, so I think that that kind of really attacks the narrative that a lot of uh, a lot of conservative politicians try to say, which is when you try to use legislation to bring things the opposite way, so to uh, give um, people of color more opportunity, so like through uh, affirmative action programs, that you are somehow giving them a you are giving them special treatment. But considering the fact that we still have so much damage done to the black community based on uh, how the laws used to be and how they kind of there kind of continues to be um, uh, practices that there does need to be special laws to basically say, hey, you know, those old habits that you had, we need to break them and we need to use laws to do it. Right. 
there's the idea that racism is connected to malice or hatred, that's a problem. Yeah. Because most people who do racist things are just doing it because that's what they always did. It's more convenient. They want to be comfortable. They want to do what other people are doing. You know, they're not thinking, man, I hate those black people. I'm going to yeah. go get them. And that is a really important point because... Absolutely critical. Like, yeah. you know, while obviously there are people that are, you know, legitimately hateful individuals, like, you know, your, uh, your David Dukes, your Richard Spencers, I'm... Mm-hmm. Um, when a lot of people hear the word racism, especially levied against sort of like average white working class people, they think, oh, you're comparing me to those Klan members. Um, but no, like you said, it's really about old habits, you know? And and I think with all of the attention that overtly racist action is getting over the past few years, we see, you know, rallies in Charlottesville and other places like we haven't seen in, in, a, in a relatively long time at the scale that we haven't seen since probably the, the seventies. Um, so it's getting a lot of attention, but to your point, it never went away. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, the, the overt extreme racism never went away, but more and more importantly, more insidiously, the subtle systematic racism in our systems, but in also, our complacency never went away. Right. And it's, in fact, actually supported, mm. um, you know, by by the system in a variety of ways. Yeah. I mean, there are things that you can do, things that you can't do, and they add up. process that puts people in prison, puts black people in prison, yeah. in these astounding numbers, <clears throat> you know, it there's something going on, you know. Sure. And unless you believe that black people are bad, you know, in some remarkable, strange way that nobody can prove, then you have to say, well, the system is doing something. And it, the prosecutors do it, the cops do it, you know, even the prison guards do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's systematic. Yeah. yeah. And we've talked about that a little bit. When you talked about gun control, we specifically talked about the um, disproportionate impact that that has on minority communities, specifically black and Latino communities. It's, it is the headline of the story of uh, the war on drugs. And then, and, and there are tons of other law enforcement programs that have this impact, but we very rarely hear about it unless it impacts white people, you know, like, like um, I think specifically of like civil forfeiture, which is the practice of police without, um, without uh, probable cause being able to seize assets that they think, you know, may have been involved in a crime. Well, a lot of, you know, that's been getting a lot of attention from the ACLU and other um, justice organizations because it's been used to just generate money for the police, but it's been used against black people for an extremely long amount long time. And it's one of the main levers by which you can enact injustice um, via policing without really any recourse for the people that are hurt. True. It's, it's really overwhelming. So at the end of the day, um, cause you're, you're, the title of your book is not just monuments. Um, we've talked a little bit about what leads up to those monuments. In your opinion, what do those monuments represent? And what do you think we should do about the monuments? Like, break them down with a sledgehammer, throw them in a museum. What do you think? Well, I think the key phrase is part of this complete breakfast. 
the monuments didn't happen by themselves. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, you know, somebody came along and they said, they certainly didn't say, I want to remember this, so I'm going to build a monument because otherwise I might forget it. That never happened. You know? That never took place. Oh, people in the South will never forget the Civil War. <laughs> right, right. Well, and we shouldn't forget the Civil yeah, War. Yeah, no, but, exactly. But uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a little memory device. Mm. But the fact is there was an organized, massive campaign. And really it was there before the war. You know, the campaign then was to convince people that you know, slavery was really a good thing, mm-hmm. and in particular to convince white Southerners that, who didn't own slaves, that it was to their benefit, which in some ways it was. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that same process of convincing people then picked up again after the war with some very interesting changes, like all of a sudden they said, oh, we were never actually in favor of slavery, even though they just fought a war to protect yeah. slavery wealth. But, uh, but they said, but there are all these other things that we want. And if you look at the, for instance, the, the most substantial, significant monument of all is the monument to Lee on Monument Avenue in Richmond. Oh, yeah. So that monument was dedicated in 1890 couple of important things. First, that was 20 years after Lee died because they couldn't have done it while he was alive. Yeah. He would not have been in favor of that monument. Mm. <clears throat> you know, maybe the statue over his grave in Lexington, but a huge monument on a major street was just not where he was at. And he was no saint, but no. that was just <laughs> wasn't his thing. But more importantly, by 1890, this lost cause movement and Lost Cause propaganda had been built up. And the speaker, the main speaker, was a, uh, was a, a veteran of the, uh, of the war, and he was also the wealthy heir to uh, an iron industry in Richmond. And uh, he very explicitly said in his speech, you know, this is great. Here we are, we're only, you know, few years away from the war, 25 years away from the war, and we, by which he meant white Southerners, are able to celebrate our own with no interference, and we are able to govern ourselves with no interference. And what he meant by that was we're governing as racists. Mm -hmm. We're governing black people, and the army has gotten out of our way. Mm. So he was celebrating the fact that Essentially, except for slavery and a few other details, you know, they had gotten what they wanted and they were going to hang on to it. And uh, John Mitchell, who was the editor of the, uh, the Planet, the Richmond Planet, which was the African-American paper at that time, you know, he wrote that same week. He said, you know, this is going to be, this is a message this is a message to the future, and we have to respond to it. And black folks in Richmond organized a big march, but of course, the statue, they'd had 200,000 people, and they mm-hmm. couldn't organize anything on that scale. But he knew right then, you know, not, he didn't read it in a book 50 years later, he didn't study, uh, you know, um, post-structuralism or something. 
he looked at it right then and he said, they're sending a message about white rule and we have to push back. Do you think that message, the lost cause narrative and, and just that, that overall post-war message has gained like momentum and gained credibility in, I guess, like the past 120 years, 230 years? No, it's lost credibility. Okay, that's good but, news. <laughs> but it's gained in the last five years, it's gained some. I mean, it's interesting. Mm. The bottom line is it's never gone away. And, mm. and that's why I say it's not about not just monuments. The entire school system was saturated. Mm -hmm. um, I live in Winchester, a town Nathan knows well. There was a woman named Mary McGill who was a virulent rebel. Um, and she actually got thrown out of Winchester by the U.S. Army general who was in charge. And uh, she in 1877, I believe it was, published a history book. And that history book was adopted by the state of Virginia for children, and it was the history book. And it's just incredible. One of the things, for instance, it says there were only two slave revolts, two <laughs> rebellions of enslaved people in Virginia history. <laughs> and that's because those are the two that, you know, Gabriel and Nat Turner that can't be denied. Mm -hmm. But she knew better, you know. She, would, she had studied history. She'd gone back and looked, and she knew better, but she said things like that. Mm. And, Lord, when she started talking about Stonewall Jackson, I mean, it just, uh, you know, you're talking about true love. So, um, <laughs> uh. you know, that was what was taught to every child in Virginia, black and white. You know, the black ones were a little less likely to believe it, sure. and the black teachers were less likely to reinforce it. But that was taught to every child, and that book eventually was replaced in the 20s. And But some book along those lines was the official Virginia textbook up into the 1970s. Wow. So you're talking still probably a substantial proportion of every voter in Virginia was educated by a book like that. And that's really interesting because I remember when I was going through the public school system, you were, Michael was homeschooled. Yeah, uh, I never went through the public school but system. But I did go through the public school system and it seems to change year by year. Right. Like one year I'd have a history teacher who would say it was about slavery. The next year I would have a history teacher who would say it wasn't about slavery. And right. then the next year I'd have one that said it wasn't, then it was, then it wasn't. And that just kind of continued throughout my entire public schooling. And finally, uh, I, I found a teacher that I actually really, really liked and really trusted. And I was like, just explain it to me. <laughs> I mean, was it about slavery or wasn't it? Because it seems to me that it was about slavery. Uh, because every single argument that people have given for why it's not still leads down to slavery. Like, oh, it's states' rights. Yeah, states' rights. States' rights to own slaves. It was about freedom, freedom to own slaves. It was about the economy, an economy based on slavery. Right. <laughs> yeah, and plus, I mean, the one of the most powerful arguments, which is ignored, is just that the Confederates at the beginning of the war, were very explicit about what they were fighting for. Yeah, sure. You know, Alexander Stevens, in particular, the vice president, couldn't have been more out front about it. Yeah, even the president, Jefferson Davis, in his farewell address when mm -hmm. he was uh, during the succession, he specifically said, hey, y'all, I'm doing this because uh, y'all want to treat 
black people as people and I'm not okay with that. Right. He said right. it specifically in his farewell yeah, address. Yeah. You cannot tell me that they themselves, that the people right. in the Confederacy did not know that they were fighting for slavery. So talking about your situation in school, the situation you described very accurately is that while we no longer teach that lost cause history specifically, it's kind of been left up in the air mm. and no teacher is being told you cannot teach law, lost mm -hmm. cause history. It's false. It's wrong. You cannot teach it. Yeah. It's kind of left to, well, it's a matter of opinion. Well, some of these things are not a matter of opinion. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a lot of why I wrote the book, you know, is that there are a lot of things people are saying, well, it might have been this, it might have been that. Well, here are the facts, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and so this whole structure lost, it's the school system, it's the organizations like the Sons of Confederate Veterans, United Daughters of the Confederacy, who were very powerful. They kept um, certain books out of the schools, mm -hmm. as well as promoting books in the schools. So there was a whole structure, and of course state government was part of it too. They were putting up markers. The majority of markers, historical markers, put up in the 30s and 40s and 50s are about yeah. the war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course we know what side they're, <laughs> they're talking about. So the monuments by themselves, blowing up every single monument and not doing anything else would not fix the problem sure yeah we have to tell we have to say no official organization can support this set of ideas because it's wrong mm -hmm. yeah it's not a matter of opinion it's factually incorrect and morally wrong so you can't say you can't teach it in school you can't have a monument that says it none of that can happen yeah and as long as it keeps happening what you're doing is you're insulting Above all, 180,000 U.S. colored troops, yeah. you know, who went to war, saved the republic, and risked their lives, and are being, you know, abused by, by this whole set of ideas. Right. Well, Larry, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, the book is called Not Just Monuments, A History of Whiteness and Racism in Virginia from their, their beginnings in the late 1600s to today. Larry Lamar Yates is the author. The first volume will be coming out in April. Thank you so much, Larry. Let me just mention Black Gold Publishers is publishing it. Cool. Great. Yeah, so definitely look out for that in April. I know we will definitely be, I'll be first on the list to buy it so i can't wait to read through it some more all right welcome to one of our more positive segments tips for good michael why do we do tips for good yeah so as you know every week we like to come to you with a fact or something you can keep in mind to that you can enact in your daily life and maybe make the world a little bit of a better place so, Michael, what is our tip for good this week? So this week is something that you've probably had on your mind before. You've probably, you know, either felt bad after berating someone or maybe in my, in my experience, like maybe a family member has berated someone and you felt embarrassed. Mm -hmm. So basically, just be nice to people that work in service industries. It is, they're hard jobs, they're exhausting, and often the people that are working there are just trying to do their best and trying to get through and when you've got a line out the door or you're super busy, it's not their negligence that's leading to them messing up your order or something. So have a little bit of benefit of the doubt. 
be nice to them. They deserve it. Yeah. And also remember the fact that they are being exploited most likely because that, yeah. um, legally they're allowed to be paid less than minimum wage. Yeah. So also tip well. <laughs> Do both. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also fight for a living wage because, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's important. Uh, and Michael, you you worked in the service industry. Oh, yeah. I've I've. I worked in restaurants um, of all kinds. I've served many people. And I mean, being young and relatively good looking and white, it was not very hard for me. But I saw a lot of people that had a really difficult time, people who were really rude to them, who would yeah. just, just miss them off of hand, out of hand. So yeah, be good to people. All right, so now we're going to spend a few minutes talking about Trump's uh, recent budget proposal, which he sent to Congress on February 10th. Now, before we read the specifics of it, I do just want to remind people about one important fact. Donald Trump, while he was campaigning, made a very big deal out of the fact that he was the only Republican who was running on don't cut Social Security, don't cut Medicare, don't cut Medicaid. I'm leaving it in place because he was the economically populist candidate. So naturally, that means that this budget must improve, must uh, include improving Social Security. Uh, maybe even expanding funding for it, uh, and the same for <laughs> Medicare. Is that correct, Michael? You know, you might you might think that, but but it's important to recognize that in politics, especially in budgeting, it's all about priorities. And his priorities go: giving money back to rich people, cutting the deficit, and then everything else. So <laughs> no, there it's cutting Medicaid, it cuts Social Security spending, and it's it's undermining most of our welfare safety net programs. But first of all, what exactly does this like look like and mean? Um, so he sent his budget over to Congress. Does that mean they have to vote on it? Is it binding? What does it mean? Well, it's definitely not binding, um, and this isn't like the legislative proposal. Like he he can put forth a wish list, which is basically what this is, but it's not necessarily uh, like a congressperson proposing the budget itself. Uh, so it's not binding, but it is definitely a political statement. Uh, and considering what this statement is saying, um, it's still a worrisome political statement. So what are the specifics of the budget itself, Michael? Yeah, so we'll just go through some of the specific areas that it cuts and expands. Um, so one thing that it does do is um, it expands the Department of Veteran Affairs budget by 13.3%, which is a good thing. Like we advocate on this show to support our veterans and our troops. Like we want yeah. that to happen. Absolutely. Definitely. And in line with Trump's more militaristic uh, attitudes. It also expands, which he also ran against. Yes, of course. But it, it also expands the Defense Department's budget by about um, ten basis points, and it expands um, the Department of Homeland Security's budget as well uh, by about three point two percent, which is a huge jump. Um, so we see expansion for specifically military military areas, but again, as we mentioned he gave a huge tax cut to corporations and the wealthy and he's still trying to like get to balancing this budget so where does all that money come from and it comes from everywhere <laughs> it comes from infrastructure it comes from social like social safety nets it comes from executive agencies 
um, protecting the environment. He cuts money. He cuts from the Department of Agriculture, which is both the SNAP program and farmers insurance. So sorry, farmers, if you thought Trump was on your side after giving you some money uh, after the Chinese tariffs hurt you. Uh, no, you're, <laughs> he's not with you there. Um, it also cuts uh, funding by $10 billion from the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the parent organization above the CDC, the FDA, the National Institute of Health, um, as well as the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Division. So if you think Trump is out there trying to fight the opioid crisis, he just cut their funding. Um, on top of that, he cut the Department of Commerce budget by 37%. So if, you're, if you think he's out there trying to promote economic growth and help you, sorry, he's not on your side either. Yeah. So uh, I want to bring Larry into this. So Larry, you, you have experience uh, in political activism against budgets like this. Um, so is this on par with other budgets that you've uh, fought against in the past, or is it like uniquely bad? That's a it's a tough question to answer. I guess I would say that it's similar to many budgets. Um, I actually got involved as a paid staffer with low income housing uh, the year Reagan became president. Mm. So we were looking at cuts that were, um, I'm sure, nothing like what Trump has proposed here, but. They'd never happened before, yeah. you know, and there were a lot of people who were very used to certain programs that had been there under Johnson. They'd been there under Nixon and Ford, and then all of a sudden, wham. So there was a real shock. And uh, But, you know, since then, this has become a fairly typical thing. And as you guys pointed out, this document in and of itself has no power. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a threat. But what really what really counts is what Congress does with it. So based on your own experience, how much of this budget do you think could actually be implemented into the final proposal? Well, probably all of it could be. <laughs> all of it won't be. Yeah. But, you know, just to say which part will and which part won't, that's it's a political question. It's where does the power lie? Who wants you know, these things to happen. I mean, for instance, the SNAP program uh, benefits a lot of people besides the people that get to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they buy a lot of, of food. Um, and, uh, of course, farmers are helped, but also distributors and so on. So are those people going to be completely powerless and just let, you know, let this, let this run over them? Or are they going to fight back? You know, poor people, we kind of know that, that the Trump administration is certainly not going to listen to them. Um, yeah. While they do have power, it's it's very uh, minimal right now. So, again, with each thing, you can look and say, well, who, who benefits? Who might get something out of it? Um, some of these things, I'm sure the Trump administration knows they're not going to fly. Some of these things, they hope they will. They're not sure. Some of them, they're sure they will. You know, so, but sorting those out would take, I mean, you'd almost have to get into their minds. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and you can't predict the future. You can't say, well, somebody isn't gonna, you know, 
fight for SNAP in a way that will really capture the imagination of the country. Yeah. So, Michael, we can hope that no Democrat votes for this. Um, But what do you think about the chances of, um, like— how many Republicans might come out in favor of this? Because while it is true that, you know, they're Republicans, they support this type of neoliberal cuts to uh, programs. Um, but a lot of them are in states or districts that have people that depend on these programs. And I'm sure that some of these cuts, like they're looking at that and thinking, crap, that is not going to put me in a great position. Yeah. So to Larry's point, you know, Crystal Ball is a little bit out of budget for this podcast, but <laughs> I think that the the weird thing to me about this budget is that it doesn't fall along the typical party lines that you would kind of expect. Like, yeah, we talked about a lot of the like standard program, like the standard enemy Republican enemy programs, like it cuts the EPA by 27%. Yeah, that the, we, you'd expect that. Of course it would. It cuts the Department of the Interior by 13%, because like, who cares about Native Americans and nature? Um, and, but it's weird that it also cuts things like the Department of Transportation by 13%. And it's like, you know, isn't infrastructure and like, isn't infrastructure like a thing that Republicans want? Like roads and things? Yeah, and 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 to cut it cuts the Department of Commerce by thirty seven percent. It's like the economy is the one thing that Republicans try to continually point at falsely, to like hold to prop them up. So it's it seems to me much more like a wish list of a demagogue, than it seems like a, a typical like more Republican budget. So I'm kind of curious who supports it and who doesn't. Yeah. I'd say the the people that we see voting along Trump lines, regardless of the policy. I think we're going to see those people flock to this. I don't know where the other moderates would come in. So, Larry, would you say that this is a, a typical Republican budget, or do you think that um, that it is like more of a budget of a demagogue? Well, I think a lot of. I mean, I think Ronald Reagan was a demagogue. So, <laughs> um, I, so maybe those aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I guess. I mean, I think it's, you look at it almost more psychological. You know, one thing, when you talk about who's going to vote for or against this, the short answer to that is that will never happen. Yeah. Yeah. This will never appear as a document on the desk of any legislator, which they'll have to do thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm -hmm. That'll never happen. Each item might. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of these items will never, they'll just be forgotten. Yeah. Oh, did I say that? You know, well, too bad. I didn't really mean it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, most of these items will be considered. Um, but again, it, it uh, the budget is, you know, it's about numbers, about mm-hmm. tiny numbers. And uh, nobody can really grasp the whole budget. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll put in a plug for the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. They mm-hmm. do a wonderful job. Yeah. But still, you know, and they've, the head is a, a MacArthur genius. But um, still, they they do the best they can. But it's a moving target. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a process, not a, uh, a political event. So, but I think probably the most interesting things might be like commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, psychologically, why is he doing that? Is he mad at somebody over commerce? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Or has, does commerce have some program that he doesn't agree with? You mm-hmm. know, 
because that's that's a big cut. That's bigger than you know Interior and oh, EPA, and which, as you say, are more typical target targets. Oh, probably but, someone at the Department of Commerce refused to make a nice tweet about him. Exactly. <laughs> so you know, and that and when we're talking about a president that does take things very personally, and that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Reagan, it wasn't sure. personal. You know. Reagan was some people would give him some numbers and he would say these are the right numbers, but he didn't even grasp the whole thing really. Uh, not that Trump really understands all this, sure. but he does understand I'm going to hurt that blankety blank over at Commerce, mm-hmm. and yeah. so that might be the best lessons to draw for this. But it's it's bad news. There's no question. But the other thing you can say about it is that, in a sense, it sets a uh, a benchmark. Mm. But then everybody moving forward is like, well, I'm going to do better in the president's budget. I'm going to do the president's budget, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a very bad benchmark. Yeah. You know, so you don't want to start here. Um, I think the bottom line here is this does tell you very directly who the president is who he's fighting for, and what you get if you vote for him, what you get if you vote for the Republican Party. Yeah. I think that I'm, I think that every single Democrat who is running both in the primary and um, in Congress and in the Senate, they need to make sure that everybody knows this, this is who the president is. If the Democrats want to be a decent opposition, if they do want to actually uh, be a more populist force that actually fights for working class people, they need to point out this is what the president is doing. He wants to cut Social Security. He wants to cut Medicare. He wants to cut Medicaid. And that's not that's not a straw man. He's told us that is what Mm -hmm. he wants to do. So Democrats need to use that. They need to give a very firm opposition to it. And they also need to come up with their own plans off of that. Um, One of the things that I love about uh, when Bernie Sanders talks about this is he specifically says, no, we're not going to cut Social Security. We're going to expand Social Security. We're not going to cut Medicare. We're going to have Medicare for all. Um, So not only do they need to fight against it, they also need to propose their own solutions that include um, a more uh, populist solution. I could toss one thing in there for decades the Congressional Black Caucus has proposed its own alternative budget. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure they'll do it this year. Yeah. Now that's a document, you know, people could get behind and fight for. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, <clears throat> this does give an opportunity to say, no, we're not that, we're this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something the Democrats should definitely do and don't do often enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, especially the we're this part of the sentence we're seeing like a lot of, especially the moderate Democrats standing up for a big anti-Trump in the primaries, big anti-Trump thing. We're not that. We're not the bad guy. You see this with Bloomberg, especially who like his, we'll talk about him a little more, but his, his personality, like um, his, his campaign is focused a lot about his like personality and history in a very similar way to the way Trump has. But his main thing is I am not Trump. I'm a great alternative. And it's like, Sorry, guys, you're not saying what you want to do. You're just saying what you're not. Yeah. And I think that gives us a good segment to talk about Bloomberg. So after our asshat of the week, let's do that. Awesome. 
All right, and now time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat of the Week. All right, Nathan, so who's our ass hat this week? Well, this week we have our very own MSNBC anchor Chuck Todd. Whoa, we're uh, we're punching a, a bit above our uh, weight class there, Nathan. Yes, I think. we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Chuck Todd uh, was on his show, and he was talking about Bernie Sanders. And he was talking about Bernie Sanders supporters and... And how much he loves them and loves his policies and thinks they're totally feasible, right? You know, in fact, that's not what he talked about. Oh, weird. Uh, in fact, not only is he saying that his policies are not feasible, he said, quote, No other candidate has anything like this sort of digital brown shirt brigade. <laughs> I mean, except for Donald Trump. Holy crap. So let's not forget the fact that Bernie Sanders is a Jewish man himself who lost family in the Holocaust, who grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in which people had Holocaust tattoos on their arms. Now, Chuck Todd is a, is a, uh, he's Jewish himself, but that doesn't change the fact this is that to refer to the supporters of a Jewish man like Bernie Sanders as brown shirts is not just insensitive. It's just, stupid seriously that is absolutely ridiculous and for any of our listeners that might be rusty on their their world war ii history what were the brown shirts well it's a specific it was a specific unit yeah that hitler developed to serve the nazi party yeah and their specialty early on in the nazi takeover was going out smashing store windows of jewish businesses uh beating people up um, they were involved with things like Kristallnacht, which is where glass was shattered all over the streets of Germany. Yeah. So these were not just Nazis, but they were the active, I'm going mm -hmm. out and get you. And they, they, were, they were not um, posting on Twitter about people. <laughs> Wait, so we're saying that people posting on Twitter and advocating for ideas online are not Nazis? N not always. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> not, I mean, I'm sure not, plenty of them are. Not very effective. But not, <laughs> but, but not, I, I, I can almost guarantee you that So most generous to Chuck Todd is that they're crappy Nazis. <laughs> well, I can almost guarantee you that none of the people posting on Twitter in favor of Bernie Sanders yeah. are Nazis. And if there are any, um, I got some bad news for them. Um, very confused. But like, it, it's just this... Uh, I feel like a lot of the people that are constantly calling out mean Bernie supporters online don't really understand how the internet works. Because, yeah, look, we condemn in the strongest terms anybody that says anything racist or sexist or any of that online. No matter who they support. No matter who they support. Um, but the internet is a huge place. You have people that are trolls, and that's terrible. Uh, I'm I'm a YouTuber myself, and I frequently get trolls on videos that I do in which I just talk about my relationship with my wife. People decide that that's worth trolling. That's what happens on the internet. And it's mm -hmm. terrible. It sucks. But to point to those trolls and say, oh, this represents all supporters of this person is just intellectually dishonest. It's a form of straw manning. And if you believe that, if you if you push that, you don't understand how the internet works yeah. or you're just dishonest and you're a hack. Yeah, and seriously, like, so we have someone who came out and, and just totally anachronistically talked about, like, modern supporters of Bernie Sanders as brown shirts. But but more subtly and, and insidiously, we're talking about someone trying to discredit a, a candidate 
by a subgroup of their supporters that are particularly active, which he repeatedly online. has condemned. Yeah, it's like you're. It's it's a pure form of straw manning. It is it is a, a totally bad faith attack on a candidate who's now in the lead. Yeah. Hurrah, hurrah. So yeah. and also leading amongst voters of color as well. Yeah. So, um, so take a, that brown shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and a huge and hearty congratulations to Chuck Todd for being our asshat of the week. All right. So now the elephant in the primary. We're going to talk about, <laughs> for the first time ever on the podcast with any depth at all, we're going to talk about Mike Bloomberg's primary run to be the Democratic candidate for president in 2020. Specifically focusing on his history of race, specifically the stop and frisk policy yeah. and how god awful it was. Yeah, so back in November, Mike Bloomberg announced after waffling over the past few years between Republican and Democrat and Independent, he announced that he was going to run as a Democratic candidate for president, specifically to try to defeat Trump. Don't you mean he announced that he was going to run as a Republican in the Democratic primary? <laughs> <laughs> ah, perfect. The middle way. <laughs> the third way. Yeah. And he was going to do it totally self-funded, not accepting any donations. Side note, his net worth is over $52 billion, a little bit less now that he's spent over $400 million on ads since November, which is more than twice the next highest ad spend, which is Steyer, at, at just under $200 million. After that, it's just it's Sanders at forty two million. So he's outspending Sanders by like ten times to try to overcome everybody, um, overcome the early states, and just enter in the primary uh, in, in uh, Super Tuesday primary. So we've heard a lot of people talk about Mike Bloomberg, super unconventional. People tend to just focus on his strategy, whether it's going to work. They talk very little about, you know, his his policies. And what we're going to talk about today is past. Mm. So Nathan, why don't you start us off talking a little bit about Stop and Frisk. So Stop and Frisk was a policy that was implemented uh, by Michael Bloomberg in New York City. And the way it worked was a direct violation of the Fourth Amendment in which cops could just see anybody on the street and just stop them and force them to basically... Uh, have their body searched, be touched. Um, and the idea was, oh, we're doing this to look for weapons. And um, and they were just given free reign to do this to any person they happened to see walking. So naturally, uh, it must have been implemented on a very in a very equal way. No, obviously, it was specifically targeting people of color. Now, before I get into the stats, I do want to address... One quotation that Michael Bloomberg said um, while speaking at the Aspen Institute in 2015. 2015, mm -hmm. only five years ago. So this is what he said. He said, 95% of murders, murderers, and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take a description, Xerox it, and pass it to all cops. They are male, minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. That's where the real crime is. You got to get the guns out of the hands of people who are getting killed. Now, the reason why that rhetoric is important is because it translates into policy. And look, despite the fact that that is obviously racist, that is obviously uh, malicious, it's just flat out wrong. Like the facts involved in it are just 
wrong. So let's break down the stop and frisk policy under Mike Bloomberg. So as you can probably guess, a vast majority of the people that were stopped were people of color. In fact, 87% of all stops were people who were either black or Latino. And to put that in context, the black and Latino population of New York City in 2010 was only 54.1%. So a much larger proportion of stops were black and Latino people compared to the population overall. Yeah. Well, and these were the stops were basically uh, men, you typically younger men. So that's an even smaller portion of the population. It's so yeah, that's a great. They point. weren't they weren't generally stopping and frisking elderly black women. That's they, true. They did kill some, but they weren't stopping and frisking them. Yeah, and ninety <laughs> percent of young black and Latino men stopped were innocent. And according to a uh, report released by the Attorney General um, in 2012, um, of the people who were stopped, 0.3% led to jail sentences of more than 30 days, and 0.1% led to convictions for violent crimes. So if if the reason for the stop and frisk policy, which ninety, which eighty-seven percent of the time uh, affected uh, black and Latinos, if the purpose for the policy was to fight crime, it only worked 0.1 percent of the time. It did not make people safer. It violated constitutional rights. It violated civil liberties. It disproportionately uh, targeted minorities. It didn't do anything to help anybody. It didn't reduce crime. It didn't fight criminals. It just oppressed black people. And this was Bloomberg's doing. I'm, I don't want to take away any blame. Obviously, Bloomberg was responsible and should be held accountable for this, but... When you say it didn't benefit anybody, these are not new policies. Yeah, um, This is, uh, I'll just read a little bit of an 1808 Virginia law that the job of the slave patrol was, quote, to patrol and visit all Negro quarters and other places suspected of entertaining unlawful assemblies of slaves, servants, or other disorderly persons and uh, any others strolling about from one plantation to another. So in other words, this, this was the law, explicitly, was they're out there, you're supposed to find them and get control of them. Now, I would say, I would argue, and I do in my book, that we're still looking at a similar process. Mm-hmm. You know, in the last couple of years, we've had, thanks to having video cameras on our phones, we've had a lot of these, you know, uh, Becky and some of these other pe- white people who've been calling in, uh, saying, you know, black people are, they're barbecuing, they're selling water, they're sleeping in the in the uh, dorm study room. Selling water bottles. Right, and we're calling, we're calling the police. Is that insane behavior? At one level, we can say, well, it's, it's pathological. But at another level, what those people and the police, by doing things like stop and frisk are doing, is they're protecting whiteness. Yeah, because that's going to happen, especially on the border of the black community and frequently encroaching whites, gentrifying whites, because those white people have a different standard. 
So then Bloomberg really is carrying out a very dangerous legacy. Right. And he's obviously carrying it to an extreme. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is these numbers are way beyond you know, other cities. I mean, you know, Chicago wasn't doing this, and Chicago has done some terrible things. Chicago has had some torture squads. Mm-hmm. I personally know, you know, black people who were tortured uh, and sent to prison in, in Chicago, but Chicago wasn't doing this. So this is, it's an atrocity. The fact that it's that it's been policy in the, in the United States for, you know, a couple hundred years doesn't excuse it in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I would say that when you say it doesn't benefit anybody, there are people who are particularly business people who are trying to kind of move into the black community and establish a nice place for their, you know, I hesitate to name a business because it's not their fault, but the yogurt place or the yeah. yoga studio or anything else that starts mm-hmm. with yoga. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that those people... Uh, want to have a certain level of comfort. Yeah. So black, those young black men on the street that were being stopped and frisked were exactly who makes them uncomfortable. So I guess I should rephrase that then. It's, it's antithetical to the stated goal. And the Absolutely. stated goal is reducing crime, right. uh, fighting crime, fight, like preventing violent crime. Yep. If it only does that 0.1% of the time, it's a catastrophic failure. Well, and, and notice that like that's the stated goal. The just the just dog whistling, the just subtext goal is prevent black and brown people from doing crime against white people. Yeah. And so it's like there is a almost overtly racist undertone going on underneath that policy. Mm. Even if the effect is clearly obviously a racist and unequal result, the policy itself is is far from blameless. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And one final fact that I want to say to really nail this home is the fact that the number of stops of young black men, meaning between the ages of 14 and 24, exceeded the entire city population of young black men by approximately 10 thousand which is 10 percent above the population yeah approximately 10 percent above the population that is absolutely insane and so some people some people might say that okay well bloomberg has walked this back he's actually come out against the policy recently the day before he announced his uh (laughs) yeah that's not suspicious (laughs) not suspicious at all but at the same time his coming out against it is super recent and he's continued to like zealously advocate this for a number of years after the city started to um reduce the number of stops they were doing on on a day on a regular basis so he he left office in 2012 um and the city has has stopped and frisked fewer and fewer people each year but he has continued to say that this is a great policy i mean even through 2015 and more recently Yeah. yeah this is a serious black mark, a serious issue. And if he thinks that that's not going to affect his electability, especially among minority communities, which are key voting group for the Democratic election, that's just insane. Yeah. 
I look, I've been I haven't been very nice to a lot of Democratic candidates. Um, I've been very critical of Pete Buttigieg. I've been very critical of Amy Klobuchar. Um, but Bloomberg is kind of on another level here. Like, yeah. I think that I think that Buttigieg and Klobuchar um, at the end of the day, and maybe I'm being naive, but at the end of the day, I do think that they at least their hearts are at least in the right place. I think they participate in a corrupt system uh, because they think that that's the only way that they can get anything done. So they have to be a little bit corrupt. They have to do a little bit of corruption in order to uh, in order to fulfill some of their goals. And I disagree with them. I don't like that. But I think that they're at least in it for some of the right reasons. Mm. Um, Bloomberg is not that. It's all self-funded like, problems on that side. <laughs> exactly. Bloomberg, he has malicious record. Um, he's trying to buy the United States. We cannot let him do it. If you're a Democrat voting in the Democratic primary, I, I usually don't say, I, I usually avoid saying things like, don't vote for this guy don't or vote for this person. I, I give arguments for candidates and against candidates um, that I like or don't like, but um, please don't vote for this guy. <laughs> All right, and now for one of our more positive uh, short segments to close out our podcast, we'll uh, do our highlights for the week. So, uh, Nathan, what was your highlight this week? My highlight for this week was Bernie Sanders winning New Hampshire. <laughs> I was very happy about that. Yeah. Um, and the fact that he is now undeniably the front runner, that makes me very happy. And it does make me feel like a lot of the messages, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the the having conversations with family members and friends, like maybe not me personally, but me along with everybody else who has been doing it has actually made a difference. Yeah. To all you thousands of listeners out there, <laughs> you did this. <laughs> what about you, Larry? What's your highlight? Well, I've been watching the Virginia general assembly pretty closely mm -hmm. and there have been some, you know, what do you say? Low lights and highlights, but, uh, there definitely has, we're looking at a general assembly that's looking at the real issues and doing things about them. Some good things, some bad things, but at least they're operating in the real world as mm -hmm. opposed to this Republican fantasy land that they've been in. So, yeah. so it's a good feeling overall, you know. That's great. So I wish you were there. Uh, me, too. <laughs> me too. Me too. Me too. But you can't have everything. Sure. <laughs> Um, so for me, my highlight is on a personal note, we finally moved all the stuff out of our old apartment and it is on its way to our new apartment up in Northern Virginia. So we'll be, my wife and I will be reunited living in the same place for the first time in, in five months. So super excited about that. All right. Larry, thank you so much again for joining us today. I enjoyed it. And as a reminder, um, it's the book is Not Just Monuments, A History of Whiteness and Racism in Virginia from the Beginnings in the Late 1600s to Today by Larry Lamar Yates. Thanks so much, Larry. Glad to do it. And thank, thank you. you for listening, everybody.